Good morning. My name is Ruth. I'm one of the pastors here. And today, as Matthew mentioned, we are going to be finishing up our January series, Winter Kindness. And through this series, we've been thinking about the need for kindness, uh, particularly during the season that can be dark and cold and isolating and depressing even for some of us. Um, so hopefully this is a timely series, but it's not exactly a radical one, right? Um, probably nobody's going away super shocked and uh, upset that we're uh, telling people to be kinder. Um, I haven't had any emails expressing outrage about this theme. Um, you know, kindness is generally thought of as a good thing. It's, 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 you know, it's part of our culture. Our culture thinks it's good. We think it's it's nice. It's um, it's cute. Even uh, this uh, picture came up in my not this one. This one uh, came up in my Facebook feed uh, this week. Kindness is feeding the birds. We did that um, actually in the first week of this series. Uh, kindness is smiling at people and holding the doors open for them. Kindness, um, according to Wikipedia, uh, kindness is two children sharing a soft drink at the White House in 1922. Not quite sure why, but there you go. That's Wikipedia for you. It's sweet. What's not to love about kindness? But in other ways, kindness is actually hugely countercultural. As we mentioned um, in the uh, last few weeks, kindness means first and foremost, decentering ourselves and our story and recognizing that it's not all about me. Uh, with everybody else kind of playing bit parts or supporting roles. I'm not the center of the universe. Uh, I'm not closer to the center than anybody else. We are all part of a bigger story, part of humanity's story, part of God's story. We are connected. Uh, more than that, we're actually one with each other and with God. And that framework for kindness that understanding of why it's important to be kind is very alien to our culture. We live in a society that values individualism, uh, that fosters me first thinking, competition and selfishness. Ayn Rand, a huge proponent of rational self-interest wrote these words. I am done with the monster of we, the word of serfdom, of plunder, of misery, falsehood and shame. And now I see the face of God and I raise this God over the earth. This God whom men have sought since men came into being. This God who will grant them joy and peace and pride. This God, this one word, I. I don't think many people are quite as blatant about self-interest as Ayn Rand was. But we do find this kind of thinking woven into our culture. If you think about the stories that are read to us, even from our, our youngest childhood, they're almost always of individual heroes uh, overcoming the odds in a hostile world. That's the pattern that's given to us. We grow up with competitive education systems, social hierarchies, uh, pressure to all be winners, or at least all be above average. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. We're bombarded by marketing messages that tell us we need more, we, uh, we, we deserve more, we, what we have, who we are, well, none of that is enough. And to a greater or lesser degree, I think we all buy into this kind of thinking. And I think there are two, or at least two, two, two that come to mind, uh, main drivers of that. And the first is that this kind of messaging feeds into our insecurities. However confident we appear to be, most of us struggle at least sometimes with feelings of inadequacy. We're not totally convinced that we're all that lovable. We worry that we're not good enough. We have all kinds of 
uh, ideas that feed into an idealized sense of self, you know, who we'd like to be, who we expected to be, who we think we should be, who other people expect us to be. And we know we don't measure up to that ideal. And that makes us feel vulnerable. And so we protect ourselves and promote ourselves. We center ourselves and make sure that we're getting what we need to feel safe and valued. We worry we won't get enough time and attention and love and respect. And we feel that we need to, to act in terms of me first. And the second main driver is that we're cynical about the world. We think if I don't protect and promote myself, who will? Because everybody is looking out for themselves. Resources are limited. We're in competition with other people. So you can't trust others. We have sayings like nice guys finish last. We talk about getting ahead. We don't want to get left behind or taken advantage of. We don't want to be fooled by people. We don't want to be suckers. I remember as a, a young teenager going to some kind of a show um, with my family. I don't remember exactly what, but the woman, I do remember at the, at the uh, coat check was really brusque and rude with me. And so I went back to my mom all indignant. And my mom said, you've got no idea what she's going through. She could have just found out her husband has cancer. Now, I don't know why she said that. I'm sure my mom has, doesn't remember saying that at all, but it stuck with me. And, it, it, you know, I still remember it very vividly. And I, too, want to raise my kids uh, to be kind and empathetic. I have uh, two older teenagers, um, and the eldest has got lots of strengths, um, but patience is probably not the top of his list right now, particularly when he's driving. Not picking on him, but that's where we are right now. And he gets kind of mad when people pull out in front of him or, or you know, overtake him. Um, he gets kind of mad. And so I always make a point of saying, you have no idea what they're going through. Maybe they're rushing off to the hospital. They've just got a call. Maybe they're rushing to pick their kid up from school and they know he gets really anxious uh, or some other reason like that. It drives my son nuts. <laughs> He just despairs of me for being what he considers so naive. I've lost count of how many times he's told me, why can't you just realize people are jerks? Now, of course, I do understand that not everybody is rushing off to an emergency at the hospital. And indeed, they may, in fact, be being a little uh, selfish or, or, or thoughtless. But in this example, so what? What has it cost me to believe the best about people? Sometimes, though, the stakes are much, much higher. To give a truly horrific example, when Columbus landed on what we now call the island of Hispaniola in 1492, he wrote in his journal about uh, the people who lived there. He wrote, they are so artless and so free with all they possess that no one would believe it without having seen it. Of anything they have, if you ask them for it, they never say no. Rather, they invite the person to share it and show as much love as if they were giving their hearts. Soon after he wrote that, he wrote to Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand the following. They would make fine servants. Should your majesties command it, all the inhabitants could be taken away to Castile, Spain, or made slaves on the island. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. Truly horrendous. Kindness can be not just countercultural, but risky. It can make us vulnerable to being taken advantage of. When Jesus sent his disciples out into the surrounding villages to preach uh, that the kingdom of God was uh, near, he said these words in, in Matthew's gospel. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. 
you will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, the writer of uh, Matthew's gospel is here looking forward to a time when followers of Jesus were dragged before rulers, thrown into prisons, flogged, and even killed. And in such a context, Jesus instructs them to be wise, to be as shrewd as a proverbial servant, serpent. Don't be caught unawares. Know what you're walking into. Be on your guard, but remain innocent, peaceable like a dove. Now, the problem is, I think, for many of us, and I certainly put myself in this category, is that we're quick to become ser serpents, but not doves. When I'm not self-consciously lecturing my children, um, I can be very quick to assume the worst about people. I can think that people say things to put me down or to, they're out to get me and get very defensive when actually I'm not under serious attack. We can believe ourselves to be the solitary sheep among a pack of wolves when Probably in our current context, we are surrounded by other sheep. Grumpy sheep, maybe a little bit aggressive sheep, possibly, but not really wolves that are out to kill us and eat us. But we can be quick to assume a, pers a persecution mentality and to view ourselves as victims. Um, numerous surveys have, have shown that the majority of white Protestant Christians in America believe that they are persecuted despite ample evidence to the contrary. I, I like the, the next slide um, that says, may not understand real persecution. <laughs> you know? um, now, we might laugh at that, we might be dis dismissive of that, but we can all be very quick to assume people are out to get it. People are doing things to deliberately annoy us. If you ever felt like that, you know, it's a really random place, you know, somebody walks in front of you really slowly and you right there, they're there annoying me. Really? I mean, but we can be quick to think that way, to think careless comments are meant to be criticisms and people are trying to put us down. And so we become very protective and cynical. According to scripture, this feeling that we need to protect ourselves, promote ourselves, and think cynically about the world goes as far back as we can imagine in human history. The first few chapters in the book of Genesis paint uh, a picture of this. I, I know we all have different opinions about uh, how literally we are supposed to take the story of, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but whatever your views about that, and I know we have a full spectrum in the room, um, but certainly this story has a lot of truth as myth, as an ancient story that speaks to what it feels like to be human. And of course, these chapters also give us kind of the backstory to why Jews considered uh, the serpent to be so uh, cunning. Uh, so let's read some of that story. The context is God has created Adam and Eve and uh, placed them in a beautiful fertile garden with two special trees uh, growing in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God tells Adam uh, that he can eat the fruit of any of the trees except for the tree of, the no of knowledge of good and evil. So the story goes. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. 
You will not certainly die, the, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, obviously, there's much that we can say about the story. There's all kinds of interpretations and layers of meanings, rather like the uh, woman um, at the well, that story that we read last week, we're certainly not going to do justice. Uh, we're not going to try and study this in any depth. But the thing that really strikes me in the context that we're looking at right now is how this implies that those feelings we're talking about of vulnerability, needing to protect ourselves, separation from others, cynicism about the world. These seem to have, have been part of the human condition from the dawn of civilization. So uh, cynicism is defined as uh, an inclination to believe that people are motivated purely by self-interest. It's about distrusting people, doubting their intentions, believing the worst about them. It's about being wise to the ways of the world, seeing through kindness and hopefulness and other forms of positivity to what's really going on, not being a sucker. And cynicism, it seems to me, is personified in the serpent in the story who calls into doubt God's intentions. God doesn't want the best for you, the serpent says. God's not looking out for you. God's trying to keep you down. God's just looking out for God's own interests, not yours. You can't trust God. So eat the fruit because it will give you knowledge. You'll be able to judge for yourself what's really going on. Your eyes will be open to the real world. You won't need to just go along with what you're told or take things on trust. Eat the fruit and you will know better than all of that. You'll be worldly wise. The serpent also tempts with the idea of autonomy. You don't need to obey God. You'd be better off not following God. You can be autonomous. You can write your own story. You don't need to be part of God's story. You are separate from God. And of course, the serpent in many ways is proved right. This is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Innocence is lost. Adam and Eve find that they really can't trust anyone. They can't trust each other. They start to blame each other because of their fear and shame. They feel themselves to be separate and vulnerable and naked. They try to cover up and protect themselves. They hide. And in fact, they feel not just separated from one another and from God, but the whole world itself seems to have turned against them. Cynical humanity kind of looks back nostalgically nostalgically on a, an age of innocence and thinks, unfortunately, now we know better. We know we can't trust one another. We'd throw each other under the bus if we could. We know life is not intrinsically good. It's hard and painful and oppressive. We see that now. If you know the story of Adam and Eve, you'll remember that the words that God is, is recorded is saying to them just a few verses after the passage we just read. 
It says, to the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. It feels as though all of life, nature itself, is set against us, as though we are cursed. It feels like even God is against us. God's interests and ours really are at odds. Why has God chosen to make life so hard, we ask ourselves? Is it perhaps because we deserve it? It feels as though God has banished us, shut us out from the good life. The passage goes on. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After God drove the man out, God placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I think in this uh, incredible multi-layered uh, story, uh, it, there are many meanings. But one thing it says to me is that we all harbor fears that God doesn't want the best for us, that people can't be trusted and the world is inherently hostile, that we're separate, that we need to hide our vulnerability and, and cover up our real selves. We can't risk being kind, not too often, not too much. We can't afford to think of ourselves as one with others, as one with God. We need to wise up and look after ourselves. And it's to this world filled with this kind of fear and cynicism that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, these famous words. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life much more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? We look at the world and say it's hostile. There's not enough. There'll never be enough. We need to struggle and sweat and through painful toil to eat because God has cursed us. But Jesus looks out onto the world and says, look at the birds. God feeds them. They've got enough. Look at the flowers. God clothes them. They are beautiful. And you are so much more precious, more loved, more cherished than they. You don't need to protect yourself or hide away. You don't need to promote your own interests or think everyone is in competition. You don't need to get ahead. You are loved and you are enough. God will provide for you. Don't be afraid. Jesus says in the same passage, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. God is a forgiving God, Jesus proclaims. God has not shut us out. When we fall, when we sin, when we mess up, 
We are not cast out. We are still loved. God is no less our loving heavenly parent. A God whose glory is seen in Jesus as grace and truth. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we read of Jesus telling stories about things that are lost, a long lost son, a lost sheep, a lost coin, story after story that says to our cynical, to us in our cynical situation, our fears are unfounded. God isn't shutting us out. Far from it. God is welcoming us home. God is searching for us, desperately longing for reconciliation and homecoming. God is for us. God loves us and accepts us even in our brokenness. God forgives us and is kind to us. The world isn't perfect. People will sin against us. They will mess up. But just as we need forgiveness, just as we need grace, so do they. We are to live lives of radical countercultural kindness because we have children of God. And that's how God is. Kindness, forgiveness, love all the way. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus explains in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek too. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be your ch children of your father in heaven. And most of us have probably uh, read these words so many times that we are no longer uh, see them as, as surprising or shocking. Um, but we read that people were amazed at Jesus's teaching. And I think if we try for a moment to imagine we're hearing it for the first time, I think we will find it amazing too. Jesus is speaking to people who lived under the brutal occupation of the Romans. Don't resist an evil person. Seems to make no sense. These are people who lived in poverty, who regularly went hungry. Give to the one who asks of you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you you're going to get taken advantage of. This level of kindness, this answering evil with love is risky. At one level, it makes no sense. Now, actually, this passage has served as a model and inspiration for nonviolent resistance. Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, and, and several others have cited it as being an inspiration for them, part of, of what inspired them to fight injustice in uh, the way that they did with um, non-resistance, non-violent resistance. And the examples Jesus gives, uh, turning the other cheek, giving up your coat and going the second mile can all be interpreted as powerful strategies for someone who is being oppressed to publicly protest and to even reclaim their dignity. We've discussed this uh, before in previous series, uh, but briefly, if someone strikes you uh, on the right cheek and they are right-handed, that would have to be a backhanded slap. And in that culture, that was very insulting. That was the way uh, you would strike someone who is beneath you, a child, a, a woman, someone who is enslaved. But if you turn your cheek, you are not fighting back, but you are saying, in effect, if you want to hit me again, do so as an equal. Similarly, in a culture where most people only wore two garments, if somebody sued you for one and you gave them both, you would shame them. You're, you would publicly display through your nakedness how they are uh, exploiting you and, and impoverishing you. 
And if a Roman soldier forced you to carry his back for one mile and you carried it for two, he could actually be in uh, trouble with the commanding officer if, if they found out because by law, they could only force you to go for one mile. So there is a sense in which these are not just acts of radical kindness. Rather, they also carry with them the message that light can overcome darkness. Good can overcome evil. Kindness can be effective. But this effectiveness is not, of course, guaranteed in every case. Jesus is here saying, no matter what happens, answer with love. Not because it will necessarily cause the other person to feel shame and they'll back down, or that it will lead to the toppling of oppressive regimes anytime soon. It might, but we can't count on that. Kindness wasn't effective in that way with Jesus. Jesus turned the other cheek. Jesus loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him, even for those who killed him. He lived a life of love. He gave everything he had to give, and yet he was crucified. Jesus saw that that was coming too. He was under no illusions. He was on his guard. He was wise like a serpent, but innocent like a dove. We read in Matthew chapter 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, that shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take ourselves out of the center of the universe. He calls us to be kind and loving when it makes no sense to do so, when we stand to gain nothing from it, to live a life of love and kindness, even when it's not effective, as far as we can see, even when it makes us a sucker, even when it kills us. Do it because this is what it means to participate in the divine life. This is what it means to engage in the incarnation. We've read these verses uh, several times recently in John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This last verse is very striking. John is describing Jesus as the light of the world, the very force behind the creation of the whole universe, the source of all life. The prevailing current theory uh, on, on the next slide says that our universe um, began with a big bang 13.8 billion years ago, a singularity that was inconceivably hot and dense that burst apart the nothingness to create light. The scientists are correct, according to this, uh, light uh, began relatively early, about 400,000 years after the explosion, and then created life, uh, which began on Earth, according to this, about 3.7 billion years ago. Now, I don't think for one minute that John is trying to describe the Big Bang here, but he is saying that the incredibly powerful light and life of all creation, the word of God, entered the world in Jesus. And we might expect that such a powerful force would obliterate the darkness 
And instead, John says it shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John continues a few verses later. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This, of course, is the heart of the message of the incarnation. The source of all life took on flesh and became a human who was beaten and executed. The light of the world did not obliterate darkness, but came as a light that was turned away, that can be shut out, rejected, unwanted, but a light that shines still. This is in the present tense in the Greek, it shines. And the darkness has not, or did not, it's the past tense, did not overcome it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those that live lives of love and kindness, those that don't resist an evil person, but turn the other cheek, those who give to those who ask, those who go the extra mile, such people participate in the incarnation. We participate in the divine life. We too become the light of the world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. We too will shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome the light. Being kind then is not just countercultural, it's an act of defiance. It defies the darkness. It refuses to participate in cynicism. It trusts God and is an expression of hope. Hope that good will overcome evil. Light will drive out darkness, perhaps not today, but ultimately love will conquer. I came across uh, the following poem, um, the other day. And perhaps what made her beautiful was not her appearance or what she achieved, but in her love and in her courage and her audacity to believe. No matter the darkness around her, light ran wild within her. And that was the way she came alive and it showed up in everything. We are called to have courage and the audacity to believe. We're invited to let light run wild within us, no matter the darkness around us. Kindness is an act of defiance. It's also a prophetic act. The Hebrew prophets, writing in the midst of war and oppression, injustice and real persecution, describe a different kind of future. They write using metaphors. Uh, they write of a banquet, of a, of a wedding feast, of a time any, when everyone will sit under their own fig tree or their own vine. They describe a gleaming new city where everyone comes together and nations are healed. They speak of a time when the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like ox. The writers use metaphors because they and we don't know exactly what the future will bring. We don't know just what it will look like, but we trust that love will win the day. That the prayer Jesus taught his followers, that God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will come to pass. And kindness is how we contribute to this process. Showing love, self-sacrificial love, love that makes us vulnerable and can be exploited, extends the kingdom of God on earth. We are the light of the world that causes people to glorify our Father in heaven. Like a light on a stand or the glow of a fire, loving kindness draws people in. 
It brings us together. It provides warmth in the cold, light in the dark, hope in a cynical world. Jesus calls us all to repent, to think again. The old thinking of an angry God who shut you out of a hostile, hopeless world that's ultimately headed for destruction, of division and competition between people, of the need to get ahead and practice me first living. The time for that kind of thinking has gone. Think again. We've read quite a bit from the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And that section in Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus blessing those who have not succeeded according to our culture's standards, but have been exploited or marginalized by our me-first society. Through these blessings, these beatitudes as we call them, Jesus outlines the values of the kingdom that can reframe our thinking, reshape our lives. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What I want us to do right now is to uh, just take a few moments to reflect on these beatitudes, these countercultural ways of uh, viewing the world that Jesus declares blessed. Uh, We're going to take a few moments just to quiet our hearts and, and still our thoughts and to invite God to speak to us. And then I'm going to uh, read a paraphrase that tries to expand on um, each of these blessings. And as we listen, let's be willing uh, to be challenged in areas where we struggle to be kind and loving. And let's also be encouraged by the blessing Jesus bestows in areas where kindness is costly for us, uh, where we feel vulnerable, where we are perhaps being taken advantage of, where the world feels hostile, and remaining hopeful is hard to do. Let's take heart and resolve to keep our light shining in the darkness. Uh, So let's be still now. Maybe we can turn the lights down just a little bit. Let's quiet my thoughts. Let's listen to the this paraphrase of the Beatitudes. Let's invite God to speak through them. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, unsure, unsure, scared, scared, doubting, doubting, broken. You feel you have nothing, you have nothing to offer, for you belong in the land. Blessed are you, blessed are you, who are overwhelmed with a sense of loss, who feel empty inside, who have to hold it all together when you want to fall apart. God sees and cares and will comfort you.
Blessed are you who are marginalized, who feel slow and awkward. You quiet ones who get passed over, go unnoticed and underrepresented. All that is good will be yours. Blessed are you who long for justice, you who are oppressed and all who stand beside you, you who desperately need more of God in your life. You will receive the desire of your heart. Blessed are you who forgive even when it hurts. You who choose to love in the face of hostility, who overlook slights and believe the best of others, God will do the same for you. Blessed are you who would rather lose than cheat, who rejoice in the success of others. You who have no hidden agenda, who work without expectation of reward, God will be very present to you. Blessed are you who defend the weak and oppose aggression. You mediators and trusted friends, you who don't need to be right. Others will see God in you. And blessed are you who suffer for doing the right thing, who stay true when the going is hard, who are faithful to the end. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Amen. I invite you to stay in a prayerful place now as we come to communion. Um, everyone is welcome to come and to take uh, the bread and the wine or crackers and juice as it is in our case. Uh, you can take it uh, at the tables here at the sides or uh, the one in the middle. Um, you can take it together at the table or, or feel free to take it back uh, to your chair if you, that feels more comfortable to you. Everybody, everybody is welcome to take communion. These are symbols of the deep, unconditional love God has for each one of us. Also, at this time, you can light a candle, uh, a light in the darkness, as it were, uh, at the back there as a form of prayer, um, and maybe to signal your resolve to pursue hope, to pursue kindness. You might also want to pray with someone at the back or write out a prayer and do that at the stations where it says uh, uh, journey and growth. Under those banners is a place to write out a prayer. You can put it in the frames and uh, a team of us will pray for you during the week. You might also like to make a financial gift, put it in the towers at the back or just sit and, and listen to the music or, or sing along. So whenever you're ready, please respond. <laughs> 